David, hi. Great to meet you. Hi, Ali. It's nice to be here. Thanks for taking the time to answer these questions. Um, can I start by asking you how you began on the guitar and what your initial spark was? Well, um, I started playing guitar about the time um, I heard the Beatles' Revolver mm -hmm. record. I was originally playing drums. Um, and then I heard that lick that comes in about two minutes into God to Get You Into My Life at the end, the guitar lick that uh, mimics the horn line. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of mesmerized me. Um, and truthfully, you know, quite honestly, from that point on, it was like I knew I wanted to play guitar. And um, I was lucky enough to kind of get a series of teachers who um, took me through some sort of what I consider to be a logical progression. Of the first guy uh, taught me how to play Sympathy for the Devil right. uh, the, in a bunch of Keith Richards stuff um, and some really basic Hendrix things. Um, the second guy I hooked up with turned me on to uh, more blues, B.B. King, Magic Sam, Butterfield Blues Band, Albert King. Um, I was able to sort of see where all the Stones stuff came from. Mm -hmm. And then the third teacher I got um, later in high school was definitely more of a jazz player, and he turned me on to Wes Montgomery, Kenny Burrell, Jimmy Rainey, uh, a great jazz guitar player lived in Louisville, and I actually took a lesson from him at one point. Uh, doing those lessons, I was also kind of surrounded by a lot of uh, bluegrass music that was really in part of that region of Kentucky, and my father listened to a lot of country music, so I was really getting all these things thrown at me, different styles, all of which seemed to be valid to me. You know, it, it was like a question of does it have soul or does it move me or does it not? And even now I can hear sort of taking some of that acoustic uh, bluegrass influence and I, do, I use it in my electric playing. Okay. And so talking of electrics, uh, can you remember what your first electric guitar was then? My first guitar, um, I don't remember. I believe it was a Harmony that we rented at the music store. Uh, the first really good guitar I had was a Fender Mustang in competition orange with white racing stripes on it. And I thought it was happening with that, that thing. I got that in a, in a VibraChamp amp. And uh, when I was a senior in high school, we had this newspaper that came out for free around Louisville called the Bargain Mart. And right. the newspaper said, old Gibson Les Paul, 225 bucks or something like that. And I'd, I had a broken leg at the time. I talked my father into driving me over there. Uh, we get over there, and it's a gold top 52 Les Paul. And I didn't really know exactly what I what it was looking at, but I knew it was cool because the finish was all checked and it looked really old. And um, I persuaded him to loan me the money to get it and brought it home and <laughs> realized that pretty quickly that it had that trapeze tailpiece where the strings go right, under, yeah. and I wanted to be able to uh, mute the strings. So I had uh, a local guy take that off and put a stop tailpiece on, which really didn't work particularly well given the neck angle. But I used that guitar for years and um, really dug it. I wish I still had it, unfortunately. I, I know we all have so many like that. Indeed, indeed. So you moved uh, from Kentucky to Austin in the 80s. Um, why did you choose Austin, and how did you get your first gig there? Yeah, I moved to Austin in uh, 83, basically because all the music I was listening to was happening here. The Fabulous Thunderbirds, Luann Barden, Joe Ely. And came down here, I had a friend who, uh, from Indiana, when I 
lived up there for a few years, and uh, she invited me down. I slept on her floor for three weeks mm -hmm. and just fell in love with the place. Um, being fairly naive, I thought it was okay to call the the uh, local music writer at the paper here and ask him if he knew anybody that was <laughs> looking for a guitar player. And uh, he was a little taken aback, but he said, I don't know if you're any good or not, but I do know somebody that is looking for a guitar player, and uh, her name's Lucinda Williams. And he gave me her phone number, and I called her, and we played. And so within, you know, like a month, um, I found myself in a, in a car on my way to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival with a quick stopover in the halfway point, Lake Charles. We spent the night and ate about eight, 80 pounds of crawfish and then stayed in the French Quarter and did the uh, Jazz Fest. And we were staying at the same hotel as Richard Thompson, Grandmaster Flash, and Roy Orbison. So, you know, I, I couldn't believe... I was really doing this, but there was really no looking back. It hooked me, and we got another guitar player in the band shortly thereafter, Derek O'Brien, who was kind of a member of the Antones house band. Right. He was playing with Luann Barden, and she was looking for another guitar player, so I'm playing with Lucinda and Luann, and then all of a sudden I'm down at Antones on a regular basis. I was there basically every night, and it was just, I can't even begin to describe how magic a time that was. Uh, that was just a really uh, an amazing period in Austin. Sounds great. Um, so after that initial success, uh, you got a job offer with Joe Ely, and then of course John Cougar Mellencamp. Can you tell us a bit about how these two artists have influenced you as a musician, and maybe as a person as well? I got the gig uh, with Joe Ely in 1985, and I remember sleeping in from Antones the night before, and it was his brother right. on the phone. He says, you, we're going to Australia. You want to go? I said, of course. <laughs> and uh, I had to uh, fly to Houston and get a passport, or they had to do something crazy to get a passport. And that started right. a six-year relationship with Joe where I did uh, four or five records with him, and it was really what I consider to be the backbone of learning how to really play Th that band went from the quietest ballads to the most uh balls to the walls stuff that was about as intense as anything i've ever played so i really had the opportunity to learn dynamics and i can remember one specific night in germany we rolled in it was snowing everywhere and uh and we we pulled into this club and the pa didn't work and somehow we cobbled the, the pa together and we came out to play there was like eight people there and Joe just floored it from the word go. It was like the most intense show that I'd seen him do up to that point. And I, I just, I'll never forget that. And I've tried to take a lot of what I learned in that period of time. And we're still great friends. I just got back from three weeks in Italy with him. We don't play too much anymore together, but when we do, it's always great. And um, I can't say enough great things about Joe. Okay. So that's Joe. What about Johnny Cougar then? Mellencamp, um, I had, let's see, I went up and played on his Big Daddy record. And I knew him through Kenny Aronoff, who uh, I'd played in a band with before he joined John. Right. And when Larry Crane left that band, they just called me and said, you want, do you want, you want the gig? There was no audition or anything. Mm -hmm. So I did three records with John. And, um, again, you know, great learning experience, obviously going from clubs and yeah. theaters to arenas and flying around in a private jet and mm -hmm doing a lot of television stuff. It was a great experience. John's strength for me was in the studio, watching him arrange songs, and I got a real sense of how to sort of think out of the box and how just watching his mind work, taking these really simple three-chord folk songs that he wrote and 
kind of reverse engineering them. I mean, for instance, there's a song on Human Wheels. It, I think it's the first track. It's called When Jesus Left Birmingham. And we cut that song with me playing acoustic guitar, bongos, and John singing. And if you listen to the track, it, it's full-on rock, funky, electric, electric guitar, full drum kit, everything. You know, we never would have gotten to the final version had he not approached it that way. And he was really funny. He said, you know, this is the best drinking song I've ever written, and if you blank it up, I'm going to kill all of you. Which basically meant if we had to do it more than two or three times, and four at the most, it was ruined. So <laughs> that was another new thing to deal with, but um, that was my tenure with John. <laughs> okay. Um, so after the Mellencamp job then, um, you, you moved back to, to Austin, and uh, you joined Storyville, along with uh, Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon, of course, who had been playing with the Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, how did that come about, and what was it like to play with the guys? Yeah, after Mellencamp, um, I moved back to Austin and got approached by Chris Layton, who um, had started working with a guy named Malford Milligan, mm. and he and Tommy Shannon uh, were wanting to put a band together. Malford had done a record uh, under the name Storyville, and that band broke up, and he was looking to kind of put a new band together. And uh, it seemed like, wow, this could really be something. I mean, I heard Malford sing. I was just floored by him, and still am. So yeah. um, my, the way I, my options were kind of like, well, I could jump on another sort of country club tour making large dollars, or I could do this thing that really might have some weight and have value and be uh, might really mean something. I, I chose to do the Storyville thing and spent the next five years driving around in a van, basically. We made a couple of records for Atlantic. Um, you know, we had some success with Good Day for the Blues at radio, but it, the band never caught on, really. And, you know, oddly enough, I think we sell more CDs now than we did then, and I get mm. questions constantly about, <laughs> are you guys going to get back together? And yeah. I'm like, no. I don't think so. We've done some reunion gigs, like maybe five or six over the last 10 years. But but it was, I mean, there were some really wonderful things about it. I mean, it was it was hard work, again, you know, to jump out of the private plane back into the van. Um, but it gave me the chance to really sort of find my voice as a songwriter. And obviously, Good Day for the Blues, What Passes for Love. Um, there's some other songs I'm really proud of that I still play from that period of time. I think what passes for love more than any of them, I and mean, it's really hard to write a good shuffle. And, you know, John Mayall cut it before Storyville did, which was really a great honor for me. You know, again, I learned a lot about the pitfalls of the music business and what mm -hmm. not to do. But at the end of the five year run, you know, I had really paid some good dues. And I say good dues because even though they weren't necessarily fun all the time, I learned a ton. And you, and, and you learn by playing gigs and getting out there and doing yeah. it. And, I mean, I can remember being 18 years old or whatever and running, going to a Pat Metheny show and just was blown away by him and somehow I worked my way backstage and I was like, I, I just thought there had to be some secret to, you know, becoming a player on that level. And, you know, he was very polite and listened to me and he, he just said, man, just play gigs, play gigs. Mm. It's true, you know, playing a gig is worth a month of practice at home. You know, when in the, in the day of American Idol, People think that there's a shortcut, and I guess there is if you want a really short career and you want your five minutes of fame. Yeah. But if you want to really learn to play, and the people that are great players and that have careers 
have to do it. They don't do it because they think it's a neat idea. They, it's something that's in their blood, yeah. and they don't want to give it. They can't give it up, and it's part of who they are. So I'm, I'm grateful for the Storyville time, and um, we're disappointed. We were all kind of, you know, somewhat, frankly, I was a little heartbroken when the thing fell apart. After Storyville, I spent the next 10 years um, shuffling back and forth between Austin and Nashville doing a lot of records. And um, it was a great experience. I got, you know, in Nashville, it's one of the few places where you get a band, full band in the room and they uh, cut the song from top to bottom and, you know, within 10 minutes, it sounds like a finished record. A lot of the records that were happening at that time were really influenced and in the same vein as those records that I worked on with John and Joe. And uh, I also had a good, you know, a fairly good understanding of, of what I would call real country music, too. So when called upon, I could, you know, pull out a telly and do that thing. Mm. Um, I think that I got called to go there because I did something a little different by virtue of the fact that I didn't live there and do that day in and day out. Um, so... Maybe I brought something a little different to the table, sure. but at the same time understood the system, and, and I, th I think that uh, I'd like to think that I was a team player and still yeah. am, and that's a yeah. huge part of being a session player. It's not, it is not about you. It's about the, you know, the final, the artist, and how can we make, as a team, how can we make that artist and that producer realize their vision? So that was that was really. Uh, sort of my bread and butter for the better part of 10 years and sandwiched in there in the middle I uh, did uh, two year-long tours with the Dixie Chicks which was the first tour was particularly fun even though it was the uh, the political fallout uh, inauguration I guess you'd call it our first full gig was at the Shepherd's Bush Empire and it was after their home record which was a bluegrass record so we had some legitimate bluegrass guys in the band and you know, I got out there and thought that I knew something about bluegrass, but when I got around these guys who had worked with Ricky Skaggs and Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas, I realized that I didn't know a damn thing about bluegrass, <laughs> basically. I also learned that touring had changed dramatically in the 10 years since I'd done the Mellencamp tour. Not for the better, as far as I was concerned. Um, it, it had become much less about the musicians and much more about the production. Um, and do you think that... that uh, was perhaps the impetus that made you think, right, I need to do my own thing now, you know. How did you think, right, solo albums, I'm going to start writing my own stuff and, and record it? And I don't know when it really, the, the time came when I knew I wanted to do my own stuff, but it just felt, um, I felt like I had done all these things with other people. I had learned from so many different people. I had grown as a songwriter. I was writing a lot of songs. We moved into... Uh, kind of outside of Austin and built uh, a space where I could record in and was becoming reasonably fluent on the computer. And I had always watched engineers and I would always ask them questions, you know, are you compressing this? What mic mm -hmm. are you using on that? Mm -hmm. Why do you use this preamp? So I kind of got bitten by the bug to do my own thing. And, you know, with the internet, you, now you don't have to have a record company. Sure. You can record something. It can be up on iTunes the next day, and you basically have international distribution from your bedroom. Yeah. So my first solo record, Loud Music, was sort of my first foot into the water, and 
don't even know where to start on that one. Yeah, it was kind of all over the map stylistically, which was fine with me because that's really where I came from. And is there really a $50 fine for playing too loud in Texas still? Actually, it was a $40 fine for loud music. I imagine it's gone up a little bit, but that's a true story. Joe Ely <laughs> did get a ticket for loud music once in Amarillo, Texas. The second record, uh, 10,000 Feet, I think was a little more focused. In a way, it was kind of two records in one. We cut uh, all the instrumentals I cut in one afternoon, basically live, I overdubbed like a rhythm guitar part in one song. Right. But they were pretty much all cut live mm -hmm. in one afternoon with Chris Layton and Scott Nelson. The rest of the record I recorded very slowly and then had Kenny Aronoff come in and play all the drum parts in in an afternoon when he was in town with John Fogarty. Um, but I you know, became better at engineering. I thought the songs were stronger. And it has a real immediacy to it. The, last, the first two songs in the record are the last two songs I wrote. I mean, it really just captures where I was in my life at that point. Let's talk about the new album, Way Down Deep. Way Down Deep is really the culmination of the last two years, everything I've done since uh, 10,000 Feet. And then I wrote a bunch of songs over that period of time. I don't know, 20, 30, just sort of trying to write my way into the next project. I never want to make the same record twice. I knew I wanted it to sort of be a mix of instrumentals and, and vocal tunes again. And then, of course, it ended up being half and half. And I wanted it to be more of a, a rock, blues, electric record. Um, lyrically, the songs really reflect where I am now. And I feel like they have weight to them and... You know, a lot of people say, why are there only six songs in the record? And I'm like, well, does it does it matter anymore, really? I mean, I can look at my sales from downloads, and some people only download one track, maybe two tracks. And I think that the whole idea of having to have 12 or 15 songs on a CD anymore is just not as, as relevant as it used to be. And, you know, it's 594 on iTunes. I think it's a pretty decent deal. It's not like I'm charging 15 bucks for six songs. Having gone through this process and gone, gotten really comfortable with only putting six songs on it, you know, I'm kind of ready to start another one and, do another, and, and put another one out as soon as possible. And So I just chose to do the record that was true to my vision with no filler and I can, one that I can stand back and listen to and look at and say, that's exactly what I wanted to do and I didn't compromise. Let's get a little bit technical then, David. Um, how do you like to record your albums? Do you do it on the tape? Do you do it with a digital system? Do you do it all together in a room? What, what's the way you go about it? The recording process for me on my solo records is kind of the best of both worlds, analog and digital. It's way too expensive for me to be able to mm. afford to have a big console and a tape machine. I had a console that was not very good and got rid of it, and I put some money into some really good microphones and preamps and compressors old vintage gear and I have just sort of gone with a philosophy that hmm. what goes in is what comes out and I try to record into the computer and get them sounding as juicy and fat and warm as I can and then I, I work in the computer from there on it never goes back really when we record it's the bass player and myself are usually in one room and you can look through the window at the drummer it's very it's not a very big space but that eye contact thing is definitely important hmm. But it really becomes a challenge when you're trying to play, produce, and engineer all at the same time. Now, you've used Paul Reed Smith guitars for over 20 years. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to do that and, and talk a little bit about your signature model, too? Yeah, I've played PRS guitars since 1985. It's hard to believe. Um, 
when I moved to Austin, everybody here played a Strat. And I just had the, you know, I saw the, the ad in 85 when they came out, the mm. Seafoam Green guitar, and it just sort of caught my eye, and I, I fell in love with it. And it really, with, you know, with Ely, it sort of became my telly on steroids. Mm. And I've been lucky enough to work with Paul throughout pretty much that entire period. We met in 86. And in 91, I ordered a guitar from, from them. I special ordered a guitar called the McCarty model, which was a really a model I played for a long time. Um, but along the way, I kind of made mental notes of all the changes that I would even make in that guitar and the improvements I thought we could make. And gradually just started uh, talking to Paul about it and making notes about it. And originally didn't even want a guitar with my name on it. I didn't no. know that anybody would want to play a guitar with my name on it or <laughs> anything. We, I, ultimately, we settled for my initials. But they were very open. Paul was very open to all my suggestions. And so I basically spent about a year and a half going over the whole thing with him, and a bulk of that period of time was developing the pickups that are in the guitar, and we painstakingly went about that process with a, a guy here named Ed Reynolds who does all my guitar repair. Mm. He built a test guitar where the pickups could be popped in and out of the guitar in, in about 15 seconds. So you really could get a perspective on going from pickup to pickup. And we, we probably had Paul make 50 sets of pickups all of which we narrowed down and AB'd to what we considered to be the best boutique pickups on the market and used my 59-335 with a great set of PAFs as the benchmark. And um, I think we nailed it. You know, we got to mm -hmm. the point where I was like, this is it. And, man, I'm telling you, it, you would be amazed at the variables that we went through and how the smallest thing could make a huge difference. Mm. But the beauty of it is, is that we can – consistently make that pickup now unlike in the 50s where things were kind of haphazardly mm. wound and um, not all PAFs are great but this the technology now allows us to do that so there's so many things about the guitar that kind of add up to more than the sum of its parts but um, I'm, I'm blown away by it you know and, and PRS is just the consistency and the setup and the finish uh, is I think far and above the best of any bigger guitar company by, uh, by a long shot. And it's been a great relationship. And now I have the opportunity to work with them on the amplifiers too, which is a really uh, fun thing to do. It does sound great indeed. Um, so finally, do you have any plans to tour the UK at all in the, in the future? I'd love to come to the UK and play. I really would. And I'd love to do it with a band. Mm. It's just the it cost a fortune to take a band on the road and you know if that opportunity comes up i'll jump on it but um as long as i'm feel like i'm growing as a player and feeling fulfilled and can do the things that to me really feel worthwhile and you know at the same time give something back mm -hmm. to people that you know li life is really fulfilling that way so who knows man i'll take it one day at a time and um I don't know what I'm going to be doing next week. I know uh, last week, Monday and Tuesday, I was in Nashville doing a session. Wednesday and Thursday, I was in Marfa, Texas, playing with Robert Plant and Patty Griffin. And Friday, I traveled all day to get to Baltimore to do the uh, PRS experience event on Saturday. So that's that's a pretty – and then the Friday before that, I put out this record. So <laughs> that's a pretty cool <laughs> week. And, you know, I love being able to mix it up like that. It keeps it all fresh. And you bring what you learn in one thing, you bring to the other. And – uh, who knows? I'm I'm open to touring. 
but I might start a new record tomorrow. I don't know. We'll see. Either way, we wish you the very best of luck, David. Let's finish there and uh, just introduce your new record. Hi, this is David Grissom, and you're listening to my new album, Way Down Deep. <laughs> 